are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me again in your Bibles to the book of Job. And this evening we're looking together at chapter 40, and you'll find this on page 445 of the Pew Bible. God has concluded his first speech, and we read the first five verses of chapter 40. Hear the word of God. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Well, having lost everything but his life, Job was close to falling into despair, assaulted from all angles, physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual. The devil, for reasons known only to God, was permitted to destroy his wealth, his position, and even his ten children. And as he tempted Adam with Eve, so he tempted Job with his own grieving wife. Three friends arrived to comfort him, but they ended up debating the issue. And round and round they went for three cycles of individual speeches. Then young Elihu spoke up, rebuking Job and magnifying the Lord. And finally, after other speeches had concluded, God himself addressed Job. And it's said in chapter 38 that the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and it was quite frightening. Throughout his ordeal, you remember, Job's worst fear had been that God had abandoned him. More than once, Job just longed to hear something from the Almighty. So God granted his wish, and it was something Job would never forget. The Lord reviewed with him a great panorama of his amazing creation. And as we noted last time, God did not answer Job's various questions, not one of them. He did not say anything about the devil's challenge. He didn't say anything about his own silence over so long of Job's suffering, and he points to the wonders of creation and declares his absolute sovereignty. As the psalmist says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, his greatness is unsearchable. And I wonder tonight if there is someone here whose view of God needs to be expanded, myself included. Trials of life and temptations to sin are oftentimes overwhelming. Doubts creep in and you're left wondering if God really knows, if he actually cares about you, so small in the universe. And indeed, he is an infinite God who is keenly interested in every single detail of your life and mine. Can you even begin to imagine what is implied by this, God's infinity? He has no limit. There's no boundary. There is no threshold beyond which he cannot go. 
And it's hard for me to remember yesterday, but he knows all things, everything. And he's acquainted with every struggle, every groan, every tear in your experience. Each detail of your daily existence was ordained by the Lord. And so his greatness is unsearchable. And you and I are going to spend eternity searching his greatness. And our exploration into his infinite being and glory will never end. There will be new discoveries every moment, forever and ever, as we look and explore and go above and beyond in the excellence of God. So in light of that, who are we to question his decrees and his purposes and his methods and timing? Who are we? It's for us to revel in the knowledge of this infinite and eternal God. It is a high privilege to be on familiar terms with the Almighty. We just got done praying to our Father. However, the solemn rebukes of the Almighty are sometimes necessary, and after leading Job on that panoramic view of creation, God challenges him. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And what happens is this comes between the Lord's first and second discourses. And as we will see, Lord willing, God goes from the lower to the higher revelations of his glory. That is to say, in his speeches, he's going to turn from the visible creation to the invisible realm. So in the middle of these speeches, Job has the opportunity to reconsider himself. Perhaps it is a welcome pause in God's addresses to give this man relief. So in light of the panoramic display of divine glory, the Lord asks Job to respond. He who argues with God, let him answer it. Given Job's ignorance regarding the work of creation, is he actually a competent judge of what the Lord does? How could a creature properly weigh the methods and the ends of providence. Job, are you in a position to contend with the Almighty? Do you know all things? And here God's suffering worshiper is given an opportunity to express himself. We do remember what Job said earlier in chapter 23 about contending with God. I quote, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat, I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. And so now the Lord was giving him an occasion to say his peace. Job, now that we've reviewed my sovereign glory, what do you say? In other words, who are you to dictate wisdom and to prescribe methods to God? Should a sinful creature provide any kind of instruction or rebuke to the Lord of the cosmos? I think it would be the height of arrogance and absurdity to contend with God. That's his point. We are finite, weak, ignorant, and short-sighted people. Our knowledge is limited, but God is infinite, almighty, omniscient, and omnipresent, and he can do all things. And shall any of us pretend to counsel the Lord? Because that would be the height of folly. We are dependent creatures who rely upon our sovereign maker and every breath of our lungs and every beat of our hearts is sustained by his power. Every single one. 
And yet, do we not often find ourselves complaining about his providence? I'm ashamed to say that I think I find that in my life every day. Like Job, when we're afflicted, we demand reasons for bearing this cross or that cross. Why am I suffering? Why am I tormented? Why am I bereaved? Why me? And Scripture asks in response, and I don't think it does it harshly, why not you? Do you realize what you deserve? Do you not yet see that you are by nature a child of wrath? And that every moment you're spared from a lake of fire only by the mercy of Christ? And so far as we ask the questions, we dishonor the wisdom of our God, and our impatience expresses a deep suspicion about the reality of his love. In other words, we're tempted to think he's not willing to help me. He doesn't care about me. He's preoccupied with all those others. And those questions are the result of lies that are spread by the father of lies. And his strategy from the beginning has been to cast doubt upon the character of God. He said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? It's a devilish and blasphemous scheme to which we are prone to succumb. Our questions would assume that God is not infinitely wise, that he is not all-knowing, and they implicitly condemn his flawless prudence in governing the whole universe. And yet we are not wise enough to know ourselves. We're not even wise enough to know exactly what we need. Proverbs 4 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. By nature, we don't know. Are we then to give instruction to God on how he should run the universe? Besides, I want you to think of this for a minute. Had Job not suffered, we'd have only 65 books in the Bible. How many believers down through the centuries do you think have been helped by the book of Job? In God's wisdom, Job's sufferings are more useful than his prosperity ever was. He is for all subsequent generations an example of perseverance. As a prosperous man, the greatest man in the East, he helped some poor people by giving them alms. As a suffering believer, he helped countless generations to cope with affliction. How could Job have known how useful he would be to the world? He didn't know, and neither do we. The benefit of suffering goes beyond us. Paul says to the Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In Christ we have peace. The indwelling spirit of Christ takes residence in our hearts. And our human knowledge and understanding are severely limited, but the God in whom we trust is unlimited and he's omniscient. Think for a moment of a toddler going to a doctor for some important shots. One minute he's playing happily at home without a care in the world. 
The next moment, he finds himself in a sterile medical room getting pricked. He feels scared. He's insecure. He's doubtful, not to mention the pain in his arm. And with limited knowledge, he's consumed with his pain and his fear. But his parents, who love him more than he'll ever know, realize that this is the best thing for him. And without the shots, he might get sick. He might grow worse. He might even die. Is that not the way with us? We dwell on the pain and we wallow in our fear. And yet God knows all things and he ordained the future and he knows what we need. No good thing, said the psalmist, does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And do you know who those are? Those who walk uprightly are believers, Christians, not perfect people, but sincere people. No good thing does he withhold. Christians are the ones who worship God in spirit and truth. Christians are the ones who walk in good works. Their lives are characterized by simplicity and godly sincerity. And from them, God says he withholds no good thing. It's a comprehensive promise. Whatever is good, he'll give. If infinite wisdom sees that it will not be good, it's not going to give it. But if there's anything that is good and serves our salvation, he'll give it. Those who seek the Lord, according to Psalm 34, lack no good thing. In terms of this world, we have everything we need for our pilgrimage. And as far as the world to come, we'll have communion with Christ in glory. Isn't that wonderful? Suffering is hard, but heaven is glorious. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, fading. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's the key. We should keep our eyes fixed on eternal things. I'm so glad you had that conversation with Peter. Eternal things. God knows what he's doing and he doesn't make any mistakes. I say this with regard to marriage. No marriage can be a mistake. I don't care what your experience is. Referring to marriage, this is what our Lord said. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Did you get that? He's not talking about specific marriages there. He's talking about marriage in general. And what he declares is conclusive. God has joined them together. Any marriage. It makes no difference who it is. If they're one flesh, God has joined them together. And therefore, if he doesn't make mistakes in marriage, in what does he make a mistake? Nothing. Nowhere. Not in marriage, not in life, not in death, not in eternity. Not even in the details of your existence or mine. Not in the minutia of daily life. No mistakes. Everything we experience, every detail has been ordained from before the foundation of the world. And I know it looks confusing. I don't know how he does this. 
There's so much evil and bloodshed and carnage, especially in the Ukraine. I don't understand it. But one day, all of it's going to make sense. And we're going to behold the infinite glory of God. Let me go further by echoing God's stated principle of proprietary rights. Perhaps you've heard of that before. Proprietary rights. It refers to a person's exclusive legal right and ownership. In his first speech, God surveyed the creation, all of which belongs to him. He is the creator. He has proprietary rights over all of it. He is the proprietor. So may he not do what he will with what is his. It all belongs to him. By proprietary right, may he not take away my goods if he pleases? He was not indebted to me when he gave them to me. He can't be wrong when he takes them away from me. If he removes something, he removes what was his anyway. It belonged to me only as a gift, and that only temporarily in this life. Besides, we know that he is infinitely good. And if he takes it away, it is only out of love. By proprietary right, he may number my days and he may bring them to an end whenever he pleases. He gave me my being and why would it seem strange for him to take it back? The dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. We ourselves, don't we, enjoy proprietary rights over what belongs to us? May we not do what we want with our house, our car, our possessions? Do we have to give anybody a reason apart from it belongs to me? How much more may God do what he wants with what is his? Therefore, to grumble or complain about his providence is unworthy of the king. To do so is to consider ourselves as much a God as our creator himself. And I just wonder if there is someone here who's asking the same questions and struggling with the same issues as Job. Let's meditate on God's goodness and his greatness and his willingness to carry us because he tells us in Isaiah 41, fear not, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Well, in response to all of this, Job expresses his sincere repentance. He was in such a state of confusion that he could hardly speak. Behold, he says, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. And I believe we find in Job's response clear evidence of a regenerate heart and faith in the coming Messiah. He exhibits the understanding of himself that is lacking in the unbelieving world. In our effectual calling, the Holy Spirit first works on the understanding. When you become a Christian, when you're regenerated, he first works on your mind. And the mind, once blinded, is by his power savingly enlightened. And the new creature is able to see that which he never saw before. Job beheld Christ from afar. 
He treasured him more than anything else. And he began at this point to recognize in himself the corruption of remaining sin. Behold, he says, I'm of small account. The King James puts it, behold, I am vile. That's how they translate it. Behold, I am vile, wicked by nature, blinded by self-love. Why else would Job complain? Because he realized now that he deserved far worse. Like Narcissus, who saw his reflection in the water and fell in love with it. Job's understanding was profoundly deepened by God's speech. His understanding was enlightened. And next, his conscience was revived and tenderized. You see, the natural man's conscience is either asleep or seared or fearful. But the believer's conscience is revived by the Spirit and informed by his word. And Job was convicted of his pride after God directly spoke to him. I lay my hand on my mouth. His conscience was wide awake, accusing him of his ill desert. And in the moment, its accusations stung, but it was spiritually beneficial. And then in our effectual calling, we find that the will is renewed and sanctified. Because you see, the unconverted person is opposed to God. He hates God. He defies God. The mouth of the wicked devours iniquity, Proverbs 19.28. A natural man loves to break the commands because he loves sin. And he's determined to choose his own way and follow his own rules, but not the believer. The believer's will is renewed, and it's sanctified, and God's law becomes his delight. And as the will is renewed and all the inward affections are carried along, he follows in the Lord's path. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, Job was no longer willing to argue. He's no longer willing to complain. He was unwilling to open his mouth. So one thing we should do tonight is appreciate the humbling effect that God's word can have upon the soul. Previously, Job had defended his integrity and called for an explanation. But when he was addressed by the majestic, thrice holy God, he repented. Lord, you are holy and I am vile and I lay my hand on my mouth. And that, brothers and sisters, is an illustration of repentance unto life. It's godly grief. It's a necessary element of salvation. We need to have our pride humbled. Godly grief, or as some put it, godly sorrow, is the antecedent of true repentance. There needs to be, in a true believer, this awful apprehension of the majesty of God, and at the same time, this deep sense of our own unworthiness, our needs, and our sins. That's repentance. And if you experience this to any degree, thank God, because it is a mercy. And then let's rejoice in the Lord's sanctifying work that leads to salvation. Do you see that through Job's suffering and God's speech, that man was enlarged? His understanding was increased. 
His conviction was deepened. His desires were more purified. And it wasn't an easy process. In fact, Job almost slipped into despair. But he was always supported by the everlasting arms, and God preserved him, proving once again that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't need to fear tomorrow. God has you in his grip, and he will never let you go. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful, ancient believer and how by your grace you pre- preserved him and sustained him through the most difficult trials of his life. And we draw from that courage and comfort, knowing that you'll do the same for us. Please be with us, enlarge us as you enlarged him, and help us to praise you with grateful hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.